survive and thrive. This is a podcast that brings you stories and perspectives on how leaders and organizations can not only transform to survive, but thrive in change. I'm your host and co-founder of Consinity, Jennifer Ayers. For today's episode, I'm going to do a brief recap on what we covered during the last eight episodes, where I had some partners and colleagues walk you through what I believe are the eight tenants to drive meaningful, impactful, and sustainable change in an organization. So let's review these so-called eight tenants or principles and why each one is important. Our first tenant is building the case for change. And for that episode, I was joined by our human experience leader, Lisa Inslee, who had this to say about leading an organization through change. I've recognized that irrespective of the work you do, whatever work you're leading, there's always going to be this possibility to create change or the inevitability that your work will affect change. So with that, there's always this opportunity to lead others through change especially if you're the one that's spearheading an initiative, leading up a project. If you can take hold of that opportunity to lead your organization through the change, your chances of success are are going to be that much higher. So how can leaders do just that? One of the first steps, of course, is to build the case for change. Basically, to define the why. This is all about purpose. In season one, we heard time and time again the relevance and importance of purpose. I like to think of purpose as the so what. Why do you do what you do? Having a sense of purpose helps you take action towards creating meaning and hence happiness. But it does so much more than that. It can help you stay grounded and provide perspective in times of difficulty. Why does this matter for an organization? According to a study conducted by PwC called Putting Purpose to Work, not only do employees need to hear leaders talk genuinely about why their work matters, but leaders need to show that the organization's purpose really is central to the business strategy and that decisions that are made support it so that employees can be confident advocates. So if you want to create an organization of confident advocates, you must not neglect the effort needed to build the case for change. I asked Lisa how leaders can do this, and here's what she had to say. First and foremost, you really need to make sure when you're building a case for change that you've identified the core problem or problems and that you're able to articulate the pain that's felt and by whom. You need to be able to communicate what the impact of that problem and that pain is having. And it is the catalyst to say, okay, we need to do something differently. And it needs to be shared in a relatable as possible way. What's the potential future? What could that look like? That's what you want buy-in on. By developing a clear case for change that ties to the overall business strategy and mission, companies can reinforce the link between the individual employee's purpose and the mission of the company. One final word on this tenant that I think cannot be underscored enough, and Lisa sums it up nicely here. The first word that comes to mind is transparency. And the second two words that come to mind are are healthy urgency. Transparency because 
you're going to build a lot more trust and respect by being transparent about what's happening and why and uh, reasonable urgency because if you don't address head on the change that's happening and why and all of the the rest of the case around that, your organization is going to fill in the blanks and they're going to fill in the blanks differently. And the impact of that can be quite substantial in a negative way. The next tenet is about engaging your audience. This really is all about intentionally trying to understand who is impacted by the work and by the change occurring, as well as considering what they care about and why you should too. For this, it requires a bit of empathy. We heard that word a lot during our first season as well, and for good reason. Employees do not feel a sense of commitment to help the organization if that same organization has not shown a sense of commitment to their well-being. When Glassdoor published its 2020 Best Places to Work Employees' Choice, some of the common themes surrounding the companies that landed on the top of the list related to those that had empathy for their employee needs. I love the description that meditation teacher Oren J. Sofer uses to describe empathy in an interview with Dan Harris on his 10% Happier Meditation app. Oren says that empathy is, quote, the capacity to tune into what someone else is experiencing. And when we empathize with someone else, when we genuinely listen to them and give them an experience of feeling understood, there is much more willingness to listen to us and to get the work done together. There it is, people. There's much more willingness to listen and work together. Isn't that what we all want at the end of the day? Don't we want to have our employees listen to us as leaders and work with us on navigating through change? The answer is yes. One other element that is important to include is the notion of compassion. In episode two, Jeff spoke about this. You use the word empathy, and I've always used that as a very strong, powerful emotion because it's kind of like the been there, done it before. And so you feel someone's pain and you can really relate to that. And I think that's really true on any level, both personal and professional. But I think the other part, which, and I think I shared one time with you, Jen, but I actually read a book and it was uh, based on a commencement speech that I had heard through a very powerful, very influential CEO. And he mentioned a word empathy that been there, done it. But he said the when he read the book, he said the word compassion, which I have you know, used for many times, many times, but I've never realized the difference between empathy of been there, done it, and compassion being been there, done it, and doing something about it. So it's more action-oriented. And now for the third tenet, crafting meaningful messages. This is where you need to translate some of the why you are doing this to various audiences while considering the context in which they might be receiving this information. Why is that important? I'll give you an example. Recently, a client informed me that a broad company policy change was announced to the organization via email with an expectation of a quick timeline to implement it. Unfortunately, the people that needed to adhere to this new policy didn't really have the tools to react within the timeline specified, primarily because those employees didn't really use email in their job function. 
So how well do you think that message landed? Not very. Here's a little recap between me and Lisa in episode three on this subject. Since today's tenant subject is all around messaging matters, I would love to hear from you related to that last point that you just highlighted on, uh, around messaging. In almost every interview we conducted during our first season, communication was one of the number one actions a leader could take that came up during navigation of complicated times and unknown times, especially with COVID. And communications to help navigate change sounds so simple, yet I think organizations don't always do communications so well. So in your experience, how can organizations do a better job at communications? It's a great question. There is often a lot of opportunity left on the table when, as leaders, we don't pause to think about what is happening in the organization and how actions we're taking or projects we're launching or work that's being done is going to create change and and taking a, a a lead on bringing people through the change. A lot of times, you know, that's that's left behind. So I think firstly, just making sure you're always considering, you know, what's changing and how can I help people through that? That's that's critical. But broadly, organizations can also do a better job by making sure they're not waiting too long to communicate information. That can be highly problematic. Last we spoke, I noted that avoiding communication is where you have people filling in the gaps for you, which can create a lot of disparate thinking and effects on the organization that can be very negative. Many times it's not possible to wait until you have all of the information 100% perfect before you communicate. Responding to this pandemic has been a great example of this because leaders weren't always in control of all the information that was coming out in terms of guidance from local governments, requirements, et cetera. So in this case, you have to go with what you know and what you can do to make yourself feel more comfortable about going out early and often with information is just to make sure that you are being very self-aware and you're showing that self-awareness and creating messaging from a place that acknowledges what we know, what we don't know, and how things might change. And then the other quick recommendation I'll throw out there is to be in tune with who you're communicating with and all the nuances that come with that. Um, you're trying to drive certain outcomes and behaviors with your messaging. So you need to have an idea of where you're moving people from and to. It's going to vary across different groups of people and it's going to require different types of messaging and also vehicles for that messaging. I'd like to focus on this idea of a call to action. Lisa expands on this nicely. I think a call to action in communications when you're going through these transformations and, and change initiatives is incredibly beneficial. It's more engaging when you actively enlist support. It makes people feel as if the change is less top down, as much as that's possible in some cases. It gives people the ability to have some role in the change and it can be empowering for them to hear that there is an action that they can take, even if that action is simply where to go to share feedback on their thoughts, concerns, how the change is impacting them, you know, even if that's just directly with their manager, as one example, it gives more of a feel of a two-way experience. And again, it puts more empowerment in the hands of everyone in the organization. So I think a call to action is incredibly powerful 
and important. And how about that? We hear the word empowerment again. One of my guests from season one, Jason Magazin, author of Engaged, has to say a lot about empowerment. He talks about how it's human nature to want to make a difference and to learn and continually improve and to make a difference for others. He talks about how this is intrinsic motivation in all of us and it's hardwired and the best organizations know how to tap into this. So people, get communicating. On to our next tenant. Sometimes I like to say, brace for the impact, which is all about identifying impacts, either positive or negative, that you need to address to minimize disruption in the organization. Let's face it, even good changes can bring disruption. While there will be impacts you can't know, intentionally taking the steps to identify what you can drives the discipline of cross-functional questioning that may surface other opportunities to enhance the business process. When I talked about this with my partner and change management expert, Samantha Collins, in episode four, she raises a very important benefit to this activity. Typically, it makes sense to bring different members of the business together into a change impact workshop, for example, where we are looking at the process from start to finish, and we're really driving at teasing out those changes to each group. And what we find in those change workshops is when we bring everybody together, often folks in one business function might not consider the up or downstream impacts of their, their job. And they might not understand how the whole picture comes together until that workshop. And then what we see is, oh, wow, there's actually a whole lot of considerations that we might not have otherwise um, understood or revealed. So what do we mean when we use the word change impact? Samantha explains. It's really the the who, what, when, how, and why, right, of the change. What is so what about this change? You know, once you have kind of those facts down, you know, you then can say, okay, well, what is the current state of affairs today? What is it of tomorrow? And really start to tease out the answers to those questions. On projects where we drive the change management, we always have this deliverable change impact assessment. It's something that we always incorporate as part of our change management offering. And I remember, Jen, actually way back in the day, you described this this process to me. I was new to change management. And I remember you describing the change impact assessment deliverable. And I thought, wow, people do this, right? It's effectively just a, an Excel spreadsheet that lists out all of the changes that are taking place. And it really teases out, okay, well, what does this change mean to this stakeholder group? What does it mean to this this part of the business? And what's the perceived, you know, impact to this group? How are they going to receive this? And then really thoughtfully planning out from there, you know, okay, what well, has to get done? Okay, it's going to affect these people in this way. How do we plan for that? And how do we build that into our change plan? So I remember when you described that to me, I thought, wow, this is such a simple exercise. But then in doing it over and over and over again on projects across the board, from ERP deployments to M&A, merger integration projects, you start to see the power of like such a simple exercise. Just seeing it all on one page allows you to sort of filter on a group and say, this is the broad change, and this is how it's going to affect these groups of people, so that we can then tailor our change strategy to those people and 
scale up or down based on the impact to that group. Another benefit to identifying impacts is it can inform your communications and the communications plan. But what happens if you don't do this or it's not done well? When this is not done well, you can see different issues pop up, right? For example, in the case of an org change with like a new CEO or something, right? People may incorrectly assume that it means something that it doesn't, right? Because it's human nature to sort of assume the worst and we get fearful and it can spin, the narrative can spin out of control. So understanding the sort of changes in this way early allows us to take control of the narrative to get ahead of some of those um, implications right downstream. And it also helps us to you know, mitigate issues that might pop up that could actually jeopardize the, the go-live date. And not just jeopardize the go-live date, but disrupt business altogether. Samantha and I saw this firsthand when we saw the value of doing this work with one of our clients as they were able to mitigate an impact that would have literally left millions of dollars in unrecognized revenue during their first quarter earnings after they implemented a new process change. I think that's pretty significant. Our fifth tenet is all about planning. And while it's very important to build and follow a plan, it's just as important to flex, pivot, and replan when unforeseen circumstances take you in another direction. I like how partner Crystal Kurtz sums this all up. The funny thing about plans, you know, this happened to us all the time, Jen, is we spend so much time coming up with the plan with exactly how things are going to unfold. But in the many years that I've been working on plans, I've realized that a plan is, is a starting point. A plan helps you feel grounded, but then gives you a place to pivot from because you can never see into the future perfectly. But as long as you know where you're starting from and what you're trying to achieve, the plan gives you the confidence to make choices and to pivot going forward as you are confronted by changes or things that are just different than, than what you expected. However, she goes on to share another important consideration as to why bother to even build a plan. So when I think about planning now, I really think about what are we trying to achieve with the planning process? One thing is that starting point. Just the act of planning can help me and it helps my clients understand where the business is at today. How well do people talk together across the firm? How well do they work together? What is the maturity of the different functions of the business or the different customers across the business? It really helps give a temperature check and understanding of where you are today. So then you can more confidently plan for how you're going to get to the future. The other thing I've found is plan is it's kind of this big overarching term, but you really need to think about plan in terms of your different audiences. And Jen, you taught me this in thinking about change to really step into the shoes or the persona of who you're planning for and understand what does that, if it's a day one experience or if it's something that gets influenced over time, what does that feel like? What actually happens to that person? And when taking that personal perspective, you create a better plan for change. So just the act of planning can give you a better understanding of the business and bring together leaders from different parts of the organization, functions, and geographies, and create a collaboration that is extremely helpful. 
This will also help you bring in different insights on how changes will impact not only your employees, but perhaps your vendors, partners, customers, etc. So what are the elements that make up a good plan? Here's what Crystal had to say. One of the things that I appreciate now that I've made hundreds of plans is starting with that cross-functional or cross-market understanding. I need to be able to think about what it is that we're planning towards and then push at it from all of these different angles to understand what are the things that we also need to consider in addition to all of these details that need to be folded in, that some of those details are really dependent on things that may be out of the control of the people who are executing those details. So a plan really needs to have enough detail that the people on the team executing towards the tasks have a really good understanding of not only what needs to be done, but how to articulate their progress and their risks along the way. And then also to be able to understand more holistically when something goes wrong in one place, how it may throw something off track in another place, even though they are seemingly independent on the surface. No matter what level of detail you build into your plan, how comprehensive it is, or how pretty, some final key points Crystal makes in our discussion are, one of the most important things is having a really good understanding across your leadership team and across your organization as to why are we trying to execute this plan? Why should I be on board? Why should I be making these trade-offs? And what does it mean to me for when this, this plan is implemented? Is this change good for me? Is it, am I better in the short term? Am I better in the long term? Being able to articulate those things in addition to or in support of what needs to be done is often more critical than having a detailed plan. It also comes back to the core values of the firm. The team needs to trust the people that they're working with, and they need to trust in the viability of the the idea and the company so that they feel comfortable not only working towards the change, but making hard choices along the way in order to achieve that change. If there is trust with the leadership team and with each other, then there is more confidence to move forward, whether it be quickly or in a different direction. But if you don't have that underlying trust, then there's there's a lot of work to do to bring people along. If you're not building that trust along the way, then you're doing a lot of convincing as to why this is going to be better. One final comment that I appreciated from Crystal to keep it real. Change doesn't happen to an organization. It happens to people. And people come together to build an organization, but we really have to keep in mind the, the individuals that make up our organization and the individuals who we are selling our products to and the individuals who are, you know, supporting us and we're, we're buying other products and services from. Our sixth tenant explores the relevance of metrics to help you with any business change. In episode six, my colleague Jigger and I talk about the different ways to do this. I have been on projects where the metrics are very sophisticated and developed into an overall dashboard that goes up to a steering committee every week for review on a regular basis. I've been on other engagements where just short pulse surveys are pushed out to get a sense of where people are in their understanding of what's changing. 
In my opinion, anything is better than nothing. Jigger shares an observation from his experience. At least one or two clients that I can think of where they were going through a massive uh, transformation that impacted multiple systems, uh, multiple departments. We're talking thousands of people. And, you know, consultants were involved, obviously, from the very beginning to help drive the change. But at the same time, you know, nobody really anticipated the resistance or, you know, the pushback from some of the employees. So I would say the lesson learned in, I would, in a very large transformation was to really baseline by conducting a pulse survey or just understanding the voice of the, the customer, which in this case is the talent. Once we realized that we needed to baseline and understand you know, what the voice of the customer looks like even before we start the change, that turned out to be profound. Establishing metrics can not only give you useful information about where your workforce is in the journey, but it can help you communicate progress to people. If you want to learn a little more about why sharing progress with your people matters, I recommend reading The Progress Principle, Using Small Wins to Ignite Joy, Engagement, and Creativity at Work, written by Steve Kramer and Teresa Amabile. Metrics also help leaders make better decisions on the fly, especially in the face of changing wins. With metrics that support your objective, you can make decisions with greater confidence. Even if you don't reach your North Star, you're still making progress and going in the right direction. Developing Resiliency This topic explores how to create an organization adapted for change. In this episode, my colleague Kelly Scaff gives you some very practical advice on how to establish a function that better positions an organization to respond rapidly to planned and unplanned changes and help lead the company through those changes. Often this capability might reside in, say, a business transformation office, an M&A function, continuous improvement office, or sometimes a standalone function such as change management office. Wherever this capacity lives, one of the most important points Kelly makes, and I support this point of view, is to have the right sponsorship and to establish it in the right place in the organization where it can have visibility and influence across the organization. With the right sponsorship and level of influence across the organization, you can more easily create standards and processes that give you great leverage as an organization. Kelly also shares three important hurdles to overcome for any leader who wants to nurture a change-capable organization and perhaps even establish a formal effort to do so. In my experience, there's been seeing this change competency develop in different ways with different levels of maturity and for different objectives and purposes across a variety of companies, each struggling with, I think, a similar set of hurdles that they need to to climb. One is competency and skills. Do you have the capability to drive the change? Two is the sponsorship behind it. Do you have the leadership behind you to own the change and help enforce the recommendations that you're making? And I see the third piece is, and, and what really needs to be done well, is simply to communicate. It seems very simple, but raising awareness to what are you doing? Why are you doing it? So that people are aware and informed and, and part of the journey rather than feeling that they were on the tail end and you're just telling them what they need to do versus bringing them along for the ride. Communications is especially important during times of change when, absent that, 
people make up their own narrative, which can create more turbulence and chaos. Establishing a change capability can support and nurture strong cross-functional communications, which can be a common challenge for any organization, but especially for those that are mid to large or growing fast. If there's one thing the pandemic has reinforced for us, it's that nothing is really certain. Why not take the steps to develop some consistency among the uncertainty for people? It will certainly make their lives at work a little easier, and probably yours as a leader as well. Now for one of my favorite tenets, recognizing and rewarding. One of the simplest ways that costs nothing is a genuine thank you. After countless surveys and doing my own discussions with people that I have mentored along the way and I have coached, I am still amazed that leaders don't just do this. Over and over, I hear statements like, it's like my boss doesn't even care what I do or know what I do, or I'm working so many hours without any acknowledgement. Recognizing and rewarding is an imperative piece of the process to help people feel that you see them, you see what they're doing, and you recognize them for doing what they're doing. Ultimately, this ties back to the idea of our second tenant, empathy. And asking your employees empathetic questions can help them feel valued, show them that you care, and also learn insights that you may have otherwise missed by not asking. Even simply acknowledging extra efforts on behalf of your employees will make them feel a keen sense of encouragement. It will help them feel motivated and continue to stay strong in the face of changing winds. After all, as a leader, you should be grateful for your people. Now, let them know it. Here's a final thought on recognition. Where I've seen the biggest lift, Jennifer, that really, truly changes a culture from the inside out is when the organic conversations happen of appreciation and recognition, the things that happen multiple times a day, not the grand poobah of the annual award, but it's the the simple conversations. I know it kind of sounds cliche, but how do you change culture? One conversation at a time. When it comes to managing change, one conversation at a time. Well, that about wraps it up for season two. Thank you listeners for tuning in this week to Survive and Thrive. We'll be back next week to launch season three. Have a great day.